On this episode of This Week in Linux, we celebrate an awesome milestone for both Red Hat and the Wine Project, both reaching their 25th anniversary. Ubuntu announces a new minimal ISO for containers and the cloud. We take a look at some cool developments from the Nuvo project and Firefox. Malware was recently found in the Arch Linux Arch User Repository, or AUR, and we'll discuss some unfortunate news from the creator and founder of Python programming language. Later in the show, we'll check out some cool terminal applications, including a game to learn how to use Vim. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and it's your weekly source for Linux good news. Up first in the show this week is Red Hat celebrating their 25th anniversary. Now, this is awesome, and there's been quite a few things that they, they were talking about in the blog post as well as the, the about pages they created for this. What they, they Actually, this about page goes through like the things that Red Hat has gone through. You know, Based on the, the, the amount of time that any tech company exists, most of, they don't, most of the time they don't exist for that long. Like It's very rare that a company actually exists for that long. So they're talking about how they've gone through the creation of the of open source, the dot-com booth, uh, boom, I mean, uh, going to the mobile era, and so much more, like cloud computing and stuff. Then they also have this blog post that goes more in-depth about the, the history and experience of how Red Hat has gone through this, you know, getting to that 25 years milestone. Um, what's really interesting is that they mentioned that they've gone through 65 consecutive quarters of revenue growth or basically 16 consecutive years, well, 16 plus consecutive years of growth to the point where they now are worth $2.9 billion. So that's good. But anyway, uh, congratulations to Red Hat, and uh, thank you for putting all that effort for so much, so many years to help improve the ecosystem and the community. And I uh, hope to see you for another 25 years uh, or, and beyond. If you'd like to see some more content, uh, you know, check out the the about page or the blog post. You can check the link in the show notes. Speaking of 25 years celebration, Wine is also 25 years old. July 4th, 1993 was the first release or the 1.0 release of Wine, or Wine is not an emulator, the Windows compatibility layer for Linux, so you can use Windows applications, and within the first year. Solitaire was available on Linux. And then Word and Excel stuff, but whatever. Solitaire. Important. I'm not sure exactly when Minesweeper came over, but... Anyway. Uh, what's interesting about this is that there wasn't really an announcement from the Wine team. I couldn't find anywhere like the, like the Wine project was, you know, making a big fuss about it. They totally should. You, you totally should. Um, but it is fantastic. And... Everybody who hasn't tried wine, you should definitely give it a shot, especially if you use something like the Wine Bottles infrastructure or play on Linux. Give those a shot because they can provide a lot of nice use, usability for different applications and stuff like that. Uh, but also, this they, this week they released uh, 3.12 of wine. So um, this one is, this is more of an iterative improvement with like core fundamentals being improved, like, for example, getting updates to Unicode with Unicode 11 incorporating a proxy configuration dialog, uh, like 40 bug fixes that they had, including fixes for the cmd.exe, uh, like Windows command interpreter. Um, but also, also updates to the Wingdings font. 
So yeah, Wingdings and Wine, 25 years. Awesome. So uh, congratulations to Wine for lasting as long as it has and being so, and thank you for being so useful and being so, you know, like such a great project to exist and I appreciate it. And uh, again, hopefully for more 25 years and more. This week, the founder and benevolent dictator of Python, Guido Van Ros Rossum, I think that's how you say it. I'm probably wrong. Sorry if I am. Uh, he's decided to step down as the benevolent dictator, and it's understandable that you know you might want to take a break in some cases. You know, you know that he's been doing it for so long that uh, it's understandable you might want to. But his reasoning for it was pretty unfortunate because it was it was due to uh, a community. Uh, it was a pretty toxic discussion about a about PEP number five seventy two. And PEP means Python Enhancement Proposal. So there was this proposal that was created to introduce a variable structure with expressions. And it kind of ended in a weird situation, like a pretty kind of volatile um, discussion and stuff like that. And his response to it was, like, he, he made a quote uh, about in his announcement that he was stepping down is that now that PEP 572 is done, I don't ever want to have to fight so hard for a PEP and find that so many people despise my decisions. That's a that's a very strong situation there. He says, I've decided to remove myself entirely from the decision process. I'll still be there for a while to, like as an ordinary core developer, and I'll still be able to mentor people and things like that. Uh, but he says, I'm basically giving myself a permanent vacation from being the BDFL, which is a term that's... Uh, Benevolent dictator for life. Uh, usually, it's a it's an open source term that implies the founder most of the time of a project. He did say also that he's not going to appoint a successor. He's going to leave that up to the Python core team to decide uh, who's the successor as being the like the head of the project. So yeah, this is uh, this is pretty interesting news. It's pretty unfortunate as well because uh, he's very been you know he's the main driving force behind Python. And Python, he's also, of course, the creator and founder of Python. And there's been a couple of interviews that are really interesting about, you know, why he made it and things like that. So if you want to find out, I'll put a link to a couple of those in the show notes. But um, thanks for everything you've done, uh, Guido or Mr. Rossum. Uh, Python's a fantastic programming language. I, I have to say that because, you know, I think Python is probably the best programming language for someone who's never programmed before to get used to, to actually learn how to program. And it's also a very powerful language at the same time. So, I mean, this is it's, it's a very fundamentally important language, and thank you very much for making it. So malware was found in the Arch user repository, or the AUR, for Arch Linux. Now, the, the thing that happened was someone found an orphaned package. In this case, it was Arco Read and a couple others like uh, BALZ and MinorGate. These these packages were just not maintained, which is an orphan package means it's a package that's in the repository but isn't maintained by anyone. So they took over control over maintaining it, but in doing so, they also added some malicious code to it. In this particular case, they they added a, a script that would automatically download something like download and run another script from a remote site, and this would then take you know hardware information like just base, basic info for the most case. But it would take hardware information that would be like CPU information and kernel you're using and things like that. And then it would put it into a paste bin. 
the interesting thing is that this is this was seemingly done by someone who's not very experienced because they put a private API key, which kind of implies like shows who they are and sort of thing. So it was they were able to find this fairly quickly and remove it. But just to be clear, the AUR is not tested and not vetted. So this is interesting because it's kind of like surprising that it doesn't happen a lot more often. And even a, a trusted user, uh, Razzolini, he's one of the developers of Arch, an Arch Linux maintainer, he said he's surprised that this type of silly package take, take, takeover and malware introduction doesn't happen more often. And I would have to agree with that because the AUR is not being maintained by anyone. It's not It's not like being vetted by the actual Arch Linux project. And they specifically warn you to not use uh, AUR helpers, not even to use the AUR unless you download the package builds and run them yourself manually. And they specifically don't give you access to the AUR as part of the core Arch Linux until you go through the process of learning what a package build is, how to make your own package build, and how to run them. So it's really interesting that you know this is getting this is getting a lot of attention even though it's kind of like before you even use the AUR they warn you that this is a, a possibility and maybe even a likelihood that this could happen. Um they also said uh Razzolini said that's this is why we insist users always download package builds and from the AUR and expect it and build them themselves. It when they when a helper does everything automatically for you it makes it so users don't really pay attention. And that's pretty much true because the helpers are designed so that you don't have to pay attention to what is being put into the package build, which creates this whole potential problem in the first place. So it's just an interesting situation where the AUR is one of the most talked about things for the Arch Linux community as being the most useful reason and one of the reasons why you would use Arch. But the Arch developers themselves are saying like, yeah, maybe, you know, think twice about what you use from the AUR. So... Um, just this is just more like I guess it's kind of a PSA sort of, but I don't. Anyway, it's definitely worth you know checking into each time you try to install something from the AUR because this sort of thing can happen. Just don't blindly install stuff. Make sure you know who's like check the voting system, the comments, and see if there's you know there's people have been testing it and see if it's like good to go. And um, that's that's a good a good way to test to gauge whether it's you know it's it's a solid developer or not. But anyway, if you would like to learn more, I have a link to the post from Sensors Tech Forum as well as the response from uh, Razzolini in the show notes. Up next in the show, an infographic from Ubuntu was released. This was actually pretty interesting because in 2016 they released something similar and it was kind of showing like how far has Ubuntu come since its creation. And now this is kind of like not necessarily a, you know, since, to the, since the 2016 one. But sort of, you know, in conjunction with it, I guess. But then they just a couple days ago, they released a new infographic that explains, like, how far Ubuntu has come and what it connects with, like, basically, essentially saying everything, which makes sense. There's a ton of stuff, like uh, Amazon's Deep Lens thing, Google's TensorFlow, um, you know, Netflix uses Ubuntu in their infrastructure, uh, their massively involved in the autonomous car development from Intel, Samsung, etc. And like just the level that Ubuntu has reached is very impressive. I mean, we kind of already made an assumption because it's it's 
it's easy to make the assumption that Ubuntu is the most popular distro, but the like how much popular it is 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 it's hard to say. But this is all this kind of information is good because you know I'm a I'm a data nerd, so I like to you know see this kind of stuff, especially if they put it in a you know infographic method. That's nice too. Uh, they said that 40% of Linux users that run uh, IoT solutions use Ubuntu for that, uh, using the uh, Eclipse developer survey to, for reference of that. And they, it works with Kubernetes, Azure, with the Microsoft Azure platform, AWS platform, you know, OpenStack stuff. Like Basically, Ubuntu is in so many pieces that in some way it does connect everything in the same way that Linux connects everything. Because Linux is, you know, even farther than Ubuntu, but the fact that Ubuntu itself, just a single distro, is so important to so many projects is very cool. So if you want to see more about, you know, all the different projects and stuff that are included in this infographic, I have a link to that in the show notes. Ubuntu announced the minimal Ubuntu release for public clouds and Docker Hub. This is for uh, containers and cloud usage. This is the new minimal Ubuntu uh, ISO that you can use as a server or cloud infrastructure that you can, you know, very quickly build, create, and start, start up, you know, a, like a large scale of optimized cloud servers and you know doing specific tasks and things like that. So this this new release is 50% the size of the standard Ubuntu server. The boot times have been optimized so it's 40% faster than their previous versions. And like overall, like overall, it's just it's like a full Ubuntu stack distribution for cloud and server implementations, so that you can have like a hundred or two hundred servers that spin up very quickly to do a certain task, and then you just kill them again. So the the boot times are actually very important because they're typically used in a very quick ne quick need type of situation. So you need you know ten seconds or less to get something up so you have like a hundred that all go up at the same time do something and then you take them back down like that kind of thing which is pretty interesting because they're they're still working on making it even faster desktop users you know who cares if you save like three seconds or whatever but as far as like cloud deployment it is kind of important so it's interesting to see that you know, Ubuntu is still working on this kind of thing uh, but there's there is one thing they do need they need to work on pro I don't know if it's really that important but it definitely is something they need to consider the name of this is terrible because it's minimal Ubuntu. Not to be confused with the minimal ISO of Ubuntu or the Ubuntu core minimal structure or the Ubuntu desktop's minimal installation. You, you should come up with different words to describe these things is what I'm saying. That would be, that would be very beneficial for marketing and uh, people understanding what all this stuff is because you use the same word for everything. Not as easy. Anyway, just food for thought. Um, so if you're interested in more, learning more and more about the minimal Ubuntu cloud server image, then check the link in the show notes. Next up in the show, this is really interesting news from the Nuvo team. There's a, been a new, a new contributor to the project for the past few months or so, and it's about three months roughly, and he's done a, quite a lot of work. So I just wanted to bring attention to it because the Nuvo drivers, um, you know, are the open source NVIDIA drivers, or not NVIDIA drivers, but they're open source drivers for NVIDIA GPUs and stuff like that. So uh, I think his name is 
Rice Perry. Reese Perry? I'm sorry. I don't know how to say it, but it's something like that. And uh, he's done a lot of stuff that's really interesting as far as like the, the fundamental core driver features of supporting OpenGL, uh, various different things of OpenGL, like conservative restoration extensions, the the AR, ARB sample locations, and improving stuff for Maxwell components, as well as adding support for recently for the, the for cycle count estimation of the NVC0 driver. That's fun to say, right? Anyway, you know, suffice it to say that it's a very important, uh, you know, contra contributions to the Nuvo drivers, and I appreciate it very much and just wanted to bring bring attention to it that, you know, they, they, if you're wanting to contribute to the project, follow the lead of this district contributor and maybe help the project grow and expand to maybe, you know, someday not have to rely on NVIDIA. Well, other than the hardware itself. But not have to rely on their software drivers because, yeah. You can check a link in the show notes for some more information about the individual contributions he's made, things like that. Firefox recently announced new test pilot experiments called Lockbox and Notes. If you're not aware of what Test Pilot is, Test Pilot is a experimental kind of like beta program that Mozilla does where you can install custom add-ons and things like that or even some services in in some cases like Firefox or Mozilla Send where you can test out new features that are coming potentially coming to Firefox or just from Mozilla in general. For example, the container tabs that are very popular as far as uh you know current user versions of Firefox those first started as a test pilot program uh, add-on. And they, it's, it's awesome. Container tabs are awesome. And I plan on doing a video about those you know, in the future someday. Anyway, this particular announcement is for Firefox Lockbox, which is an interesting sort of... I mean, it's kind of weird in the way they've structured it, but it's to be able to sync your passwords from your various devices. Now, this applies to like if you're saving passwords in your Firefox browser... And also, you can use them in your phone, but right now only for iOS users. So it's more like it's like it's kind of a competitor to LastPass and things like that. But it's really just for iOS users. So I have no way to test it. So there's also Firefox Notes, which is like a a, a competitor to Evernote sort of thing. And this one does have Android support. I have, still haven't tested it, but. Um, it does look interesting, and and also the fact that it's uh, encrypted end to end is really nice. Uh, you you will need to have a Firefox Sync account in order to use these experiments, and that's why I haven't tested either. Well, one is because I don't have an iOS device, and the other one is because I don't have a Firefox Sync account. Um, so that's why I haven't tested the other one. But I also really wanted to point out this one, this one other feature, another test pilot experiment that is. Really awesome. You should try it. I mean, it's not great for everybody. Not everybody needs this, but you should definitely check it out. And that other experiment is called Firefox Color. Now, this is an interesting way to customize the look and feel of your Firefox browser. Now, I have this custom theme that I created. That's a nice dark theme, but it's also very like subtle as far as the amount of color that it uses. Very little. You can kind of see it at the top right here, but not really because it blends a little bit into the the frame of the screen. But if you scroll down here, you can see all these different themes that you can choose from. Some of them are, you know, nice and subtle. Some are 
very in your face. And uh, there's some, some dark themes and things like that. Like overall, it's it's really cool because it's super simple to you know chest out new different themes to easily change the the look and feel of your Firefox without actually having to change any code or anything like that. And each one of these pieces, you can actually change the color and add textures and stuff. So let's say you want to have a different highlight for the color, you can just go in here, you know, click that, and now you're done. And it's and it creates the the difference in like just immediately directly so it's really cool you can copy and paste and share the themes that you create or you can click save and save that theme so that if you want to try out other themes you can go back to whichever one you want it's a really cool experiment and I like it it saves a lot of time and hassle with the whole dark theme approach like the issues of of dark themes with Linux, of Firefox is um is a, it's been a, apparent for a very long time and this pretty much solves it entirely so you can have a light theme on your Firefox, go in and change the uh, the colors with Firefox color, and you now have a dark theme. So works pretty cool. If you haven't seen this, if you haven't seen this before, go check out the test pilot. I have a link to this one as well as the other ones in the show notes. Up next in the show is Browse. I'm pretty sure it's how you say it, Browse. It's a terminal or shell-based browser. It allows you to uh, you know, go to websites and check them out in a terminal or a text-based experience. Now, there's been a, quite a few text-based browsers in the past, but this one is actually really interesting because it actually uses mod modern technologies in the sense of HTML5, CSS3, JavaScript, and etc. It even can support some videos, although the video stuff is a little awkward at times. It's sort of pixelated, so like, I'm not really sure why you'd want to do that, but it's interesting that you can. Now, the main purpose of this is to like reduce bandwidth usage, so you can have much faster brow uh, browsing, and also like if you're in a situation where you have lower, like if, you, if bandwidth is expensive and you ha you have like a data cap or something like that, this can be beneficial to you as well. Um, what's interesting is that it it uses Firefox rendering engine on the back end, so it's it's actually pretty cool for that. Um, as far as like over, I just think it's a really cool idea necessarily is that it's not really that I don't know if it's that useful for most people because it, it does pixelate everything that's not text so while it does render images it just renders them in, in like weird boxy things anyway it's kind of interesting to play with and it does get the whole like the full vibe of the full layout of a design so it's got the, like the most of the layout is is, is preserved uh, but not but images are typically uh modified in a not so positive way but wouldn't expect it to be in a terminal based browser in the first place so this is really cool and if you want to learn more and try it out you can go to the link in the show notes up next in the show is a interesting way to learn how to use vim and that is pacvim pacvim is basically a game that teaches you how to use the vim commands Essentially, you're using in a variety of different like uh, puzzle shapes and stuff. You use the Vim shortcut commands to move around the Pac-Man, which is the green character, to highlight each word that's in the the game board, while avoiding the ghosts or the characters in red. So it's an interesting way to it's the interesting way to learn Vim. 
So if you've ever been interested in trying out Vim, this might be a you know good way to try it out. Um, I just thought it was you know just fun that it existed, and wanted to let you know about it. So there you go. You can find a link to their GitHub in the show notes. So a game I've been playing quite a lot recently is Ballistic Overkill. It is a fantastic independent uh, first-person shooter game. It's kind of like a uh, a, mi a mix between Counter Strike and Overwatch. So you have it's a class-based first-person shooter, and it's it's really fast-paced. It's definitely fun. it's like a, it's like Overwatch fast-paced, but like the realism structure of Counter Strike. That's why I'm saying it's like a merge. It's a really fun game, and um, if you haven't tried it before, you know consider giving it a shot, especially because there's a new major update coming which was going to bring a lot of new skins to the different characters as well as a new game mode. They haven't really said what the game mode is going to be. There are some rumors that it's going to be Capture the Flag or like a Battle Royale type thing. I think it's probably going to be more of a class-based Overwatch mode sort of thing so that you, you, know, you play a round. And currently, if you play a round, you can pick whatever class you want. Whereas... Uh, the class-based game mode would be you. There can only be one, you know, five people or six people in a in the round for per team, and only one person per class. So you couldn't have the same class being used multiple times. So it makes it in more of a strategic structure instead of like people, you know, always using the tank or always using the sniper or something like that. It's a really, uh, I I kind of I think that's where they're going to go with it. I don't know for sure, but that like makes the most sense as far as like the the mechanics they already have in the game. But it's a really fun game, and if you're interested, you should come check it out uh, to uh, you know, play with me because I'm not very good at the game. So if you've never played it, it will probably be fine. And you can uh, join the tuxdigital.com slash discord or destinationlinux.org slash discord where I play on both servers. So if you want to join that or... Join the tuxdigital.com slash telegram group and you know message me if you want to play or something like that. You know, many kinds of options. If you want to play, just you know, take a link in the show notes for the links to the different Discord servers and stuff like that. Finally, in the show, our friends at Gaming on Linux issued made a blog post that was really interesting. I wanted to bring up is that uh, there's been multiple times we talked about the the Linux users percentage on Steam. And, you know, we've talked about that and how it's, you know, problematic and flawed and why the numbers don't really match up to reality and things like that. But they posted a really interesting article about the daily active users versus the percentage. And they were showing that if you look at the percentages of the usage, it looks like Linux is going down. You know, the, the amount of users of Linux, Linux gamers are going down, but it's actually going up. Because the majority of, like, while the percentage of the, of the users is seemingly going down, there are more users being added both on Linux and on other platforms, which makes that seem like a smaller percentage. So if you look at the actual numbers, they showed that, well, based on the percentage and based on the amount they claim exists, the amount that Steam claims, they did some math and found out that it's roughly around 151,200 when it was at the 1.26% amount in Steam 
but then it went down, the percentage is going down, but the actual users are going up. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I mean, this is still, you know, technically flawed data anyway, because the way the Steam user survey is broken in the sense that they've only been allowing you the option to choose the preference of your platform for about three months or so, maybe even less than that. And they rarely ask Linux users if they're using Linux. So the numbers are still super skewed and absolutely flawed. But it's cool to th look at it in a different perspective of, while the percentage is going down, the actual numbers are going up. And that's good, especially for developers, because they don't really care how many people are, you know, what percentage people are using, as long as they can get more people to use it. And that's a good sign. So uh, if you're wanting to read more about this, or just any gaming, you know, Linux gaming-related topics, go check out GamingOnLinux.com. And I'll link to the show notes for this direct article. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, we have multiple ways to do so, via PayPal, Patreon, and others. And if you'd like to learn more, you can go to TuxDigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to TuxDigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you could use TuxDigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere EU. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. Just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. You can find the stream time by going to touchstill.com slash thisweekinlinux, and scroll down to see the scheduled time as well as the time zone converter to get the time for your region. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Touch Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.